This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's most trusted energy providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au. Should Gillan McLaughlin stay or go? He should go, and he should go fairly soon. They still haven't got a shortlist. What? They, I'm not blaming him. I blame the commission. He's done a brilliant job, but it's time to go. I don't know about you, but sexual harassment and nod, nod, wink, wink and all of that sort of behaviour was rife in the workplaces that we knew. What an amazing achievement this is, not only for Kate Jenkins herself and her department and her team, but also Federal Parliament. Well, you know, it's always a happy day in my house when the new Richard Osman is released. Have you read any of them yet? No. You know, I'm not a murder mystery girl. Oh, look, it's not your classic murder mystery. It's obviously set in a retirement home. It's very much about the sadness and also the hopefulness of old age. They are so funny. They are so cleverly written. You will laugh out loud. I'm so excited. My first ballet outing with a grandchild. My grandmother used to take me to Ball and Welsh to the cafeteria there and a, a lime milkshake oh, and a pie. Fabulous. Those were the days. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hi everybody, welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Corrie Perkin, it is episode 243 and as I have been doing for pretty much 243 episodes, I am here in person with my dear friend Caroline Wilson. Corrie, it's great to see you. You're off on a road trip. I've got a lovely week in Melbourne coming up and we've had so much feedback from our conversation last week that I think we need to share some of it. Which conversation was that? Well, the conversation we had, which was podcast number 242, I just want to mention Dina Ludovaris, um, who, like me, missed season six of Shetland. What a pleasure to know there was a whole series of Shetland you could binge watch. The only thing was I binge watched it after I'd watched series seven. So it's sort of, it was like a prequel. It was amazing. I, I could see everything coming that I knew what was going to happen. That's like when I watched the last episode of The Bureau. Remember that brilliant series, that oh, French series? And oh, yes. friend, everybody was saying, you've got to watch it. It's an incredible, whatever it was, eight or ten parts or whatever. And we locked on to the very last episode, thinking it was the first. Oh. And, you and, wouldn't have known what was going on. <laughs> I, I struggled to keep up when I watched it in sequence. Well, I thought it was it was a temperamental, very um, highbrow French program, and I realised that we'd actually missed it. And, <laughs> and, and Pete said, I think we should go back to the beginning. I said, but we know what's happened now. Yeah, that's that's tough. Now, anyway. Corey, Elizabeth Gayton, another dear friend of the podcast, is concerned about you. Can we have a weather and sad update? Please? Elizabeth Gayton says, so sorry to hear Corey is suffering. SAD is real. Look, Elizabeth, it is real, judging by the way I have bounced back in the sunshine these past few days. Melbourne has had an exquisite weekend and uh, start of the week anyway. It's just been beautiful weather. I cannot believe with the same city that hosted the Melbourne Cup a few days ago. Um, I have to say, Elizabeth, and to all of those who uh, spoke to me personally, and including Miss Jane, actually, who had a bit of the SADs herself, that it is a syndrome. It is it is real. And um, when the sun shines and you're out there amongst it, you do feel so much better. So potties, even if it's a cloudy day or a cooler day, just try and get a few rays into yourself. Um and, and just enjoy it. And Carol, you were doing a lot of gardening, which I think is a great way 
to uh, to keep the blues at bay. But it is a difficult thing when you're expecting the weather to turn and it's freezing cold. You do feel very desperate. So um, thank you, Elizabeth, for your concern. And Sherry Margate on Instagram said, love your show. Thought I'd share a handy GLT. A great resource when you need to know where to watch a TV series or movie. It's the Just Watch app or website, and it will tell you where you can stream, buy, or rent. No more searching all the streaming services one by one. I think that was in relation, Caro, to you and I informing everybody. Wrongly. A certain show was on Netflix, and it was actually on SBS On Demand. And Gab from uh, Instagram as well said, thanks for the North Sea Connection recommendation. But I can't believe the number of betting ads on SBS this week. It's appalling. Well, it is It is one of the drawbacks of watching things on SBS On Demand. I couldn't agree more. And we'll have to continue our crusade to get rid of gambling ads What um, altogether. The um, gamble responsibly just doesn't cut it. And Corrie, Julie Rust via email. She has confirmed my sweet Caroline deep dive particularly regarding the Sydney Swans. She's a long-suffering Swans member. She is sick to death of having to listen to the song at the start of every second quarter at the home games. I mean, it is funny. Like, Port Adelaide have got now Never Tear Us Apart, which was, you know, I think David Koch's favourite song, and the ball is bounced as a down bit happens in the song. And, you know, it's – don't laugh, Miss Jane. I'm not trying to sing. Oh, <laughs> I've learned that lesson many years ago. But anyway, she is actually putting it on the feedback form from the Swans and telling them that, please, a more appropriate Australian song surely would be more relevant to the game. I I couldn't agree more, Julie, even though I'm called Caroline. I think that's crazy that they play Sweet Caroline and at least, as I say, Port Power, the power, I should say, no such thing as Port Power, have an Aussie song yeah. by an Aussie band. Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. Uh, Renz023 on Instagram said in relation to our uh, Prince Wine Store night a couple of weeks ago, which was such a success and is going to be repeated in 2023, everybody. So uh, we'll give you lots of diary dates next year. But Renz023 said, hope you'll do another one during the school holiday timeframe so a teacher can join from Sydney. Massive fan of the podcast. I imagine Renz023 is that uh, aforementioned um, teacher from Sydney. So we hope that you can join us as well. That would be really great to see you. Caro, lots to talk about. Uh, you have a new book, A Murder Mystery. We're both going to talk about the new series on Binge called This England. I have a cracker of a recipe that is so easy. It's actually embarrassing to bring it into to the podcast today, but I thought, look, um, asparagus are in season. But first, let's talk about the Respect at Work Bill, um, which is so becoming such an interesting um, story. Of course, uh, this um, this this was based on the recommendations of um, the Sexual Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins, and uh, it is. Going before Parliament, although amendments and discussion, uh, that's where we're at at the moment. And the legislation will demand that boards and companies have a positive duty to prevent sexual harassment. So essentially, they're not um, expecting anymore that the employee is the one that steps forward and makes a case. But in fact, it's the responsibility of management. This is a huge move. Some law groups, um, particularly um, the Australian, I can't remember their exact title, but I think they're called Australian Women Lawyers or something like that. While they're all for the 55 recommendations that the federal government is putting forward based on Kate Jenkins' report, they are concerned, uh, they want to ensure that the bill 
maintains um, some sort of uh, financial, um, well, not compensation, but that, but that if the plaintiff is found, uh, if the case isn't successful, that the plaintiff doesn't have to bear all the legal costs, that there is some discussion whether a lot of law firms at the moment, Cara, do do a lot of pro bono work, uh, no win, no fee. So you'll find that in these sort of issues, there's often somebody within a law firm who takes a case upon because they believe in it. And um, if they're unsuccessful, they'll waiver the fee. And um, the women lawyers group really want to make sure that that's, you know, that's put in, in train and part of this bill. So I wondered what your thoughts are about it, particularly as you and I went into a pretty male-dominated industry in the late 70s, early 80s. And um, I don't know about you, but sexual harassment and and nod, nod, wink, wink and all of that sort of behaviour was rife in the workplaces that we knew. And um, what an amazing achievement this is, not only for Kate Jenkins herself and her department and her team, but also federal parliament? Well, I guess the most surprising thing was how I, I still can't remember. I, I honestly don't believe I remember a lot of sexual harassment at the Melbourne Herald in the first, I mean, I, I started work there at 17, went overseas and had two and a half years overseas at the age of 23. So I must've been there for six years. And I, I actually, I guess if I looked back and analysed every situation, I'd find something. But it was never something that dogged me. I mean, I do remember once being called in and lectured about my my um, dress sense. Dresses from Indigo <laughs> in Chapel Street. <laughs> but, you know. They pop up every few months, those dresses just oh, pop into the podcast. Oh, whenever I see Graham Eccles, my old chief of staff, I still have a crack at him. Anyway, but, you know, he was probably right. I probably was a bit slovenly dressed and I don't think that was necessarily a female thing. No, I, think, I don't I think, think so at but, all. But anyway, no, I, what was surprising was that how few board members thought that it was an issue, that it was an issue that they needed to make these situations public. I mean, that was probably the most, I know it's a bit nuanced, but that was the most shocking of all the findings to me. And um, this some um, reluctance to um, give up the non-disclosure agreements too, that, which is obviously what Kate Jenkins is asking all the boards to do. And that is something that... They seem to be really resisting. She's, um, I mean, she's gone into, you know, Canberra, obviously, as we know, and we spoke about this at length. I think it was probably what it was late last year when Scott Morrison was still Prime Minister and, you know, clearly, I believe, paid a massive price at the polls for his refusal to understand that this was an issue, absolute blanket refusal. And um, I must say I'm really stunned at how few boards are prepared to sort of really take this on board. But she's done she's done a mighty job. And I guess what happens now, it's all very well to legislate against a lot of this, but it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. Mm, it'll be interesting to see uh, who is found amongst boards and management guilty and not guilty and what the criteria are. If anybody is a bit confused about uh, the um, respect at work legislation or proposed legislation, I found this, I follow Kate Jenkins on Instagram and you can find it, Potties, on her Instagram account. Or maybe I got this through LinkedIn. Anyway, it's around. And this is essentially what it's all about. This is what is not appropriate. Inappropriate staring or leering, inappropriate physical contact, unwelcome hugging, cornering or kissing, sexually suggestive comments or jokes, 
and intrusive questions about private life or physical appearance. Now, I can say as a young reporter at the age, I experienced all of those things. I was thinking about this last night as I was looking at that chart and I thought, God, I just hope that, I hope that times have changed. We had no idea what to do or where to go. Um, one of my colleagues... Did, did you ever find it really confronting or upsetting? Totally. Totally. I, there was... See, Mike Heen used to have a crack at my op shop coats and everything, <laughs> but it was sort of a joke. I didn't really... Okay, so, yeah, so I, don't, I mean, I don't, well, I don't want to kind of name names or dob in people or anything, but working night shift, there was often, oh, I'll go back to a pub or go back to someone's house, which didn't seem too difficult at the time. One night, so I was 20... I was before my 21st birthday and we went back to someone's house and one of the blokes there, there are a couple of girls, but there are about six blokes. One of the blokes put porno on the television, a, a video. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, no, that's so my 20, year old, my 20 year old self kind of was a bit embarrassed, difficult and got the taxi oh. home after a while. But if no, that's, that's now I look line. back at that, that is so out of line. And there were many instances like that. So... Uh, you know, um, the cadet counsellor, who's no longer with us, um, but I'm not, I'm not going to say his name, said to me at one stage, oh, yes, when people think of Corrie Perkin, this is my end of year assessment, when people think of Corrie Perkin, you know, nice girl, bit of blonde fluff. <laughs> I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> it's shattering. I'm sorry to laugh, but it's just extraordinary. <laughs> well, that's it? why that's one of the reasons I went and did footy after that. So, look, I think, the, as you say, the nuances are really important. One of the biggest surprises I found in this, um, this was a terrific report in the Age and the Herald Sun, if, uh, the Age and the uh, Sydney Morning Herald, if anybody wants to read it on Saturday, by Anne Highland. But Anne, one of the biggest surprises I found in her report was Deloitte Access Economics estimates that the economic cost in terms of loss of productivity when organisations um, are trying to cover a sexual harassment incident is $3.8 billion in Australia. $3.8 billion. And you think, well, how can that be? But think about it. Loss through uh, staff turnover, so staff who just can't bear a culture. How many times have we heard stories about that where women and also men have fled? Absenteeism, lost productivity because people are traumatised. I just found that such an interesting assessment. So it is a real thing. So if you're on a board that or did. if you're a manager or a CEO, make sure you're very aware. Some, um, Anne pointed out in a story, some companies, some Australian companies are doing some very good work. She highlighted, for example, um, the Commonwealth Bank has a program they've introduced called Speak Up. And since Speak Up uh, was um, created, um, there have been 317 incidents that have been reported of sexual harassment. So I think that's quite a positive thing. People are obviously feeling safe in the space to come out and talk about it. Last week I um, attended an event um, run by a group called Finzia, um, Young Finance Professionals, and it was at Picture Partners at around Docklands. Um, it was called Current and Future Leaders, and the current chairman of Finzia is um, our great family friend, Caroline Ramston, and she asked me to be one of a lot of, you know, professional sort of leaders in their industries talking to, it was like a sort of like speed dating or parent teachers, I called it. And they put on a bit of food and drink and each, uh, you got 20 minutes with a group of four or five young people, mainly working in the finance and legal industries, I've got to say. And um, I felt so positive about 
the future of the workforce talking to these people because oh, if I had to round it out, there, oh, maybe there, uh, there was seemed to be about the same amount of men and women, certainly the groups I had. Well, and, one group, and rough age, roughly the age group? Oh, between age. 24 and 30. Mm. And what a great experience. It was amazing. It was, it was, you know, something you do as a favour and then you actually walk away. And I asked one group, I think there were three women and one man in this one group, um, and there were mo- most of the people there were banking leaders or finance leaders or a couple of legal leaders. I was the only sort of journalist. And um, I asked one group about whether they felt discriminated against because they were women, because there were three women and one man on this particular panel. And they all sort of said, no, 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 that wasn't really an issue. There was one really impressive young woman whose ambition is to go and work overseas. They've all got some, they all want to, they've all, they're all ambitious people, but some have different ambitions to others and some are embarrassed because they're not. It was just really interesting talking to young people. Anyway, she said, look, Sometimes I can't work out when I feel as I've been mistreated. Is it because of my race? Is it because of my age? Or is it because of my gender? And she honestly could not work out which was which. And she was sort of laughing about it. But, you know, I I just said to her at the end, I took her aside at the end, I said, the world is your oyster. Mm. You are so impressive. So what you were going to say before is when you walked away, you felt, even though you'd given time, you actually felt like you'd been given a gift. Yeah, I was yeah. really well. I felt really positive about yeah, I know the that future feeling. of, and um, there was another extraordinary, extraordinary young woman. Well, not you know, she was just a very engaging young woman who came from um, Jersey or Guernsey, I think Guernsey, and um, she's been working in Australia now for three or four years, and absolutely loves Melbourne. Has no intention of ever leaving. Loves her job, but is keen to progress. Um, one of their biggest problems was, you know, about how you ask for a pay rise and how you deal with that situation. And they told me some of the advice. It was funny. A lot of the advice they were been given from the other tables. I said, no, I actually don't. I wouldn't take that. Advice. I wouldn't take that advice. Like they're all going, you know, <laughs> ne- you have to network really cleverly. And you have to, I said, don't worry about networking. Oh, you would have probably been the most popular person. Don't play politics. That um, was the last thing you need to do. But anyway, it was just, it was interesting. And then you have those horrific stories like the one from one of the big four accounting firms, that poor girl who died in Sydney a few, um, was it last year? And, um, the company basically covered up the time she was in the office and claimed she'd been doing things she hadn't. It was just absolutely appalling the way the media arm um, of one of these big four accounting firms treated this young woman's death. And um, again, you know, you wonder if that was a male, would they have done the same thing? Maybe they would have. But um, I, I feel more, Kate has made a big difference, but I feel that the, this new generation are going to make the real difference, Corrie. And in, they'll be the ones in the boardrooms in 20 years. And they just, it won't be the same. Yeah. Well, and no more secret deals. That's, well, the that's non-disclosure the, that, I mean, that's the message. Have, yeah. And, and they've, they've just got to come clean with those as well. Yeah. And, and listen, Kate, Kate is a friend of yours and mine. And I think that she's coming up to her five years. And I think, I, I don't know whether she's planning to go on for another extension or whatever, but I think that we should aim to have her as a guest um, in the new year. And I think this is a fabulous piece of legislation. And Can I ask yes, her about her time tweet. on the Carlton board and what it was really like? 
Yeah, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> hey, it's your that. podcast. Caro, on to the British Film Festival, which continues in Melbourne and Sydney. And what's the latest update? Have you been in the movies? In the movie? I've been to see a wonderful film. And in fact, um, some of these reviews come via my mother, Julia, who's just, I think she's been every day for the past few days to see British films. But we went and saw Joyride, a beautiful two-hander starring Olivia Coleman and a newcomer by the name of Charlie Reed. He is absolutely wonderful in this film. It's an, it's an Irish film set in Ireland. It's a, a, it's a bit of a two-hander. It's a road trip, but there's, it's not, they're not the only two people in the story. In fact, there's some quite prominent other people in the story, but these two, Olivia Coleman and Charlie Reed, steal the show. Olivia Coleman is, the, the story starts pretty much when, um, Charlie Reed, a young boy who's just lost his mother, runs away from a pub where he's performing Minnie the Moocher, if you can believe that. And oh, you've just taken me back. Holding a stash of money that he has taken from his father, his bad egg father. The money is funds raised to support the family after the death of the boy's mother, who was, I gather, no longer with the father. Anyway, he realised the father's going to steal the money. He grabs it from him. He runs to a car yard where he jumps into a cab, even though he is clearly not old enough to drive, and starts driving away. It is only when he's pulling out of the car yard that he realises in the back seat is a baby. And then he looks to the other side of the seat and there's a snoring clearly getting over a heavy drinking session, Olivia Coleman. He doesn't know what to do, so he keeps driving. She wakes up. What unfolds is just absolutely fascinating. Is she the mother or the grandmother of the baby? Well, you find out pretty quickly she's the mother. She's a lawyer. She's a single professional woman. She says she doesn't know who the father is. Anyway, Charlie has had experience with babies. It is just beautiful. Spoiler alert, if you want the experience of seeing um, Olivia Coleman sing the Home and Away song on a ferry, this is a movie for you. Who would have thought? Um, they're big home and away fans in this film. It is just a beautifully acted story. I'm giving a bit of a film review. But the other two that mum absolutely loved was one was called Lancaster, which is the story of the famous World War II British bomber, a wonderful documentary that left mum in floods of tears and is narrated by Charles Dance, a fascinating and quite horrifying story about some of the most brutal campaigns, British campaigns of World War II. And um, the other one she loved was Richard III, a rather funny story about the finding of Richard mm. III's True actual, story. Yep, and it stars Sally Hawkins. Mm. Who and Steve Coogan, who we love. Yep, they're, they're the couple. And she, mum says they're wonderful and she absolutely loved that too. Mm. So, look, it's still got a couple of weeks to run, the British Film Festival. Um, obviously, all the cinemas involved are palace cinemas. They sponsor this every year. I don't know, what is it about, what is it about... British films. Oh, is it British because films. we're serious with secret Anglophiles or British? No, files? no. I think I think it. I think it gets back to the whole uh, tradition of British repertory theatre and the training of actors. If you think about all the great actors and even young ones, we talk about often. They've had a they've had a few seasons with um, the Royal Shakespeare Company. The old or, Vic or... Yeah, or one of those amazing... Uh, and they have such a strong culture in the counties of um, supporting local theatre 
organisations as professional money-making uh, entities. So I think that has an awful lot to do with it, whereas Hollywood, there are so many manufactured actors and actresses. Not that that's a bad thing, but they've, they've come through a very particular way of they training. From, a lot of them come from modelling agencies. <laughs> they do I was giving them the benefit of the doubt, but you're right. Um, and also I think there was that British, um, that, that, that resurgence of British film after the war in the late 50s, early 60s, that gritty realism. Um, kitchen and, sink. The all, kitchen all, sink. Yes, Saturday all of those. Night, all, Sunday morning. Yeah, and they were yeah. low budget and they really packed a punch. And I think from that strong foundation of um, young directors, young actors and producers, of course, who learnt their craft, how to bring in a film on budget. I think as they aged and went through the industry, the industry became really sort of rock solid. I don't know. I just think that they're great storytellers, the Brits. They have the Irish and the Scottish influence, of course, and we know that they're among the great storytellers of the of the world. And... Um, and, and the Welsh, and, and the Welsh, my valley, oh. and and they're also prepared to take on less popular subjects. They don't do focus groups like Warner Brothers do on whether this ending might work or what about this ending. Or, uh, you know, I just sometimes feel that the the there's so much gloss and and stuff that's unrealistic about Hollywood movies, whereas well, I feel very comfortable in the British zone. Yeah, I mean the the indie film festival that um, the Sundance Film Festival has obviously done a lot to promote that more gritty style or more realistic <clears throat> style of um, American cinema. but And Ken Loach is a classic example of a modern-day British filmmaker of the gritty subject telling. But also you go back to the Ealing Studios and when it started in the 30s and 40s and some of the brilliant films that came out of that. And Alfred Hitchcock, I mean, if you ever... I went to a session at the Astor that had some of his early British work before he went to Hollywood. Extraordinary stagey but really brilliant pieces of work at Robert Powell and Emirate Pressburger, those two brilliant writers who made so many incredible films. Um, I, I do. I would much prefer to go to a British film festival than an American film festival. And then, and then of course, the, um, the, the group working title, you know, that mm. is mainly British and they, they have had so many so many hits. films. We're, we're going to see, what are we going to see? What's Love Got What's to Do Love With Got It? What's Love Got To Do With Emma Thompson? And, yeah, um, and I'm determined to. to go and see Fisherman's Friend number two, even though you're not. Oh, God, and then there's that an... That bad. That, when, when the original cast won't be part of it, you've I've got also, to be... I've also written down The Lost King because I loved the story. A book came out a few years ago about um, Philippa Langley, the woman who pushed and pushed... Uh, and eventually um, obtained the right to investigate whether the remains of Richard III were underneath this car park in Leicester in England. And she was successful, and obviously this film is a fictional account of that. And the other one I'm really keen to see is Brian and Charles. Have you heard about this? No, I haven't. So David Earle plays uh, Brian, who is a North Welshman, uh, a, a bit of a hermit, an inventor, a bit lonely, and decides to in, invent or build a, a friend called Charles. And so he builds it out of bits and pieces around the house and comes home one day and Charles has taken on a whole new life of his own. Oh. <laughs> mm. I love that. So I'm very keen to see that. Anyway, the good thing about the British Film Festival potties is that a lot of these films do eventually receive a mainstream release or they might even be streaming later on. But um, And, oh, there's also the um, Quant on Mary Quant, her life, which I'm really looking forward to seeing. 
after we went to the exhibition. Yeah, in London. That was great. So uh, that's uh, all jolly. Another week or two of that in Sydney and Melbourne, the British Film Festival via Palace Cinemas. And now I think we should bring in the trolley and have a drink with Miles. Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me uh, again. Miles, there has been uh, <laughs> such a lot of love in the room regarding the Prince Wine Store event. Carol and I were so honoured to attend. It was with great. You, you behind the bar. We do want to do that again in the new year. Yes. Um, but today, uh, as promised from last week, we're going to New Zealand today. Mm. We're going to the area of Otago or Ate- Otago. No, Otago. Well, that's Otago. how I say it. Central Otago, yeah. Caro, uh, geography question. Tell me exactly where Otago is. I was about to ask you the same thing, Corrie. <laughs> well, so I look, I'm, glad, I'm glad you look. I'm glad you asked oh, okay. me because I did look. Well, I did look it up on Google Maps, and it is that area. If you can imagine South Island, Potties, right hand yep. side of the of the island, um, going right through to Queenstown. Miles, would you like to be a bit more specific than myself? Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not a super sort of over central Otago, and it's it's probably a, an interesting point to sort of make in regards to used to be sort of lumped into one large region, but now now you're starting to see a lot of winemakers do a more sub regional, like not necessarily sub regional blends, but picking out the different regions. So over the years, they've sort of picked it apart and said, oh, this soil's a bit different over here. You know, it's a bit more elevated up here, or whatever it is, and so. Bendigo, Bannockburn, and there's a couple of other sort of sub-regions that have started to sort of show themselves. And Valley's one of the producers we'll talk about today. And he, he makes wine from across four or five of them. Um, and, yeah, it's a pretty – if you haven't been down there, it's pretty striking territory. And a lot of the vineyards are sort of backed sort of up against the mountains on flats or plateaus, you know, where they can plant it and, and sort of nice exposure to the sun. Obviously, it's quite cool. Um, but it's quite high up as well. This but is they the area do get a lot they, of sun they, as well because they, they filmed a lot of um, uh, the Lord of the Rings, correct. Peter Jackson's film, and you get there down because there the weather just, was quite mild. Yeah, and, and and you get down there, and it's pretty sort of yeah. I mean, they talk about it being young, I think, in, in terms of of geographic terms, but it looks so kind of old and ancient with those incredible mountains, and and it's so protected it, by the mountains. It's Queenstown which is always, in that area. Yeah, Queenstown is the main town that you fly into if you go yep. to Otago. Yeah. Yep. So what's that beautiful um, winery we, where we went for lunch and they make the best Pinot? Emma, I'll look it up. Anyway, it's just mm-hmm. one of the more beautiful places I've yeah. ever eaten in my entire life. Near, near a golf course, it would be. Yeah, it was definitely, it was definitely near Millbrook <laughs> Resort. And it was called, it began with AM a- Amersfield? Amersfield, thank yeah, you. Yeah, I'm going to talk about Amersfield today as well. And um, the reason we went there is because it was famous for its Pinot, mm. and I don't even really drink Pinot, mm. but the, it was just an extraordinary place, a beautiful place. Beautiful yeah, I find it setting. very striking down in central Otago when you're there. I got to do a really fantastic trip with uh, an importer called Negotiants, and every couple of years, I haven't done it for a few years, but every couple of years they invite about... I think two or three lots of about 15, 20 industry people from various parts of the industry, and they fly them over and they have several producers in Marlborough and Central Otago and Martinborough, and you kind of go see them all. And it's such an incredible trip. Can we please say, can we say just, just <laughs> Carol and I would love to come next time you organise mm. one, um, probably 30 potties, 50 potties. We could actually fill the plane. Yeah. So we're just putting our hands up. So what is it about the, particularly about the Pinots? Is, is there, a, is there a, 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 a commonality between them in this area? 
Yeah, and I think that's I think that's what sort of what sort of put them in the you know forefront of sort of new world Pinot producing countries as far as they have a lot of it. Certainly at the start, I think it's it's a different story now. We can talk about it briefly, but at the start, they have a lot of mass appeal as far as lovely, like fleshy, sweet sort of dark fruit that spice that you get from Pinot. Um, definitely, you know, on the plumper side of things, often. Um, kind of a bit fuller, a bit richer than you know than you might see in say other other sort of Pinot producing areas, um, but that's changed a little bit. They're putting a little more structure in their wines. You're seeing a little more tannin sort of come through to sort of uh, put a bit of structure through that sort of fleshy fruit. Um, and certainly some of the producers down there are really sort of heading that way. Others are maybe a little bit more in that traditional mold, that sort of dark fruit profile, that plum and really sort of heady spice that you kind of get from a lot of Otago Pinots. That's that's really appealing. I mean... It's interesting you say that because, you you know, obsessed by Sam Neill and Picnic, <laughs> his wine. Um, but I, I, I can have... There are some Pinots, like Tasmanian and so on, that I can have a glass of wine before dinner. You know, Kara, sometimes you and I'll have a glass of Pinot when we yeah. play Scrabble or something in winter and it's light and it's okay. Picnic is always something for me that's richer and yeah. it might be something that you have with dinner, yeah. almost with a piece of meat, really. I think that profile for Pinot and Otago is pretty, pretty, pretty common. They're, they're certainly heading towards that, you know, a little bit more than medium to sort of, you know, not full body, but certainly heading into that sort of, that that extra medium sort of style. You know, Yarra Valley, they're probably really sort of, you know, a bit, a bit lighter, um, you know, Adelaide Hills or something like that, a, a little bit lighter. You get to Otago, they've definitely got a bit of oomph about them. So what which, do you recommend? love, you know. What are you recommending for us today? So Amersfield. So oh. their Pinots are great, and I think they're in that real traditional sort of mould, um, and I think that's why a lot of people love them, and I really like them too. I think they're great. Um, but they have a new one out called Lake Haze, or it's been out before and out of stock, and I just checked with the supplier. It's back in again. So it's Lake Haze. So it's some bought fruit. It's not everything off their estate, and it's their mm. sort of – it is uh, it is Amersfield Lake Haze, but they sort of bottle it as almost like a sort of little separate thing from Amersfield proper. Um, but it's fantastic. It's like $32. And it has all that kind of Otago. It's a lot more reasonable than the, uh, That's the, right, because the next jump up to that is 55, 65, something like that, and, yeah. then, and then more again. And most Otago Pinots are starting at sort of $65 in the market. You don't see a lot. Oh, well, that's I'd a say good even recommendation. Under the 40, even oh. under the 40, there's probably not a ton and certainly not a lot that I would maybe think are great. Well, that I really like that so scout. scout. Yeah, yep. that, they do a very good job for that money. I think that. Very it's about impressive. Isn't it? Yeah, and I think Lake Hayes has a similar appeal to it as well. Um, oh. And is that thirty two dollars really with the don't no, that's shoot the messenger discount? the don't shoot the messenger oh, discount. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so put in your MEWS code and you'll get ten percent off that again. Oh my goodness! Yeah, so really well priced. And then, and do you have another one for us? Miles yeah. has got a big ticket item. Yeah, I've got the va- the Valley. Uh, I think it's the Bendigo. Uh, but so Valley is he's. Um, I forget the winemaker's name, but he, he's got quite a you know quite a professional history making wine. Sort of moved to Otago, uh, made wine there, and he, he has almost from the outset bottled sub-regional bottling. So he's got a Bannockburn, a Bendigo, um, and I just a Waitaki, which is actually I think up further north, um, and a couple of others as well. So he has these sub-regional blends, and he's a little bit 
a little bit more towards that savoury, a little bit more sort of structured in his wines, and they're a little bit lighter. They're a little more sort of dialed back, and they're a little more, I guess, subtle and elegant compared to a lot of other Otago Pinot. So I you really find a, a lot of appeal. Of with them. I think they're great. I think they're some of the best Pinots in the country as far as... Well, from Otago. And how much are we paying? So you're talking about $85, I think. Whoa. Or 87 So super Christmas pre- day. Super Christ- premium. Christmas day wine. Yeah, correct. <laughs> but look... You know, you're, you're paying Christmas for what you present. get there. Christmas yes. present. For a very, very good friend. So or that's you say ben, or just for yourself. Bannockburn and Bendigo. So did we steal their names or did they steal ours? Oh, I don't know. Well, that's always been the names of the of the areas down there. So Bannockburn and Scotland. Bendigo. Um, Scotland, of course. We, I was going to say, they'll be from the, <laughs> we all stole from from the UK. We all stole them from the yeah, UK. That's like Collingwood. Years. I've just recently been reading a book about um, a man yes. called Collingwood. Um, okay, so Miles... Um, and potties, if you are interested in both of these beautiful Otago Pinot Noirs that um, Miles has mentioned, the Amersfield, which is the slightly fruitier, heavier one, the Amersfield Lake Haze, is a remarkable thirty-two dollars. Mm, very good price. And the slightly lighter, the Valley Blend Pinot Noir, is eighty-five. As we said, Christmas Day or uh, Christmas gift, um, and of course. We get a discount because we're all messengers and we all love Prince Wine Store. And how do we do that, Miles? So just put in the code MEWS when you're in the cart or when you've filled up your cart with lots of good wine. And At princewinestore.com.au. 10% off. That is great. And um, all of the all, all of the varieties that we recommended or you did on the night of our wine tasting, are they back in stock? Would Picnic be back in stock Picnic's by chance? Picnic's back in stock. Happy the days. Yeah, yeah, Blancs come in. It yeah, has yeah. Come in, finally, I'm waiting for you my can come call. get yours. Okay, good, good to hear. <laughs> uh, Thanks, yeah, Miles. I think everything's back in. I think we've had to reorder a few things again. And you've got my champagne even. box there. I have to come and pick box. that, pick that up from Gab. We've got lots going on there. Yeah. I, just, I was going to mention too quickly. We did a sparkling um, anything but champagne, or we called it no shortage of sparkle last weekend. I thought I'd do a quick shout out for it because if you're looking for sparkling that's not champagne um, from Australia, France, stuff we've got stuff from the UK. Loire Valley, um, they're, it's up on the website and it's a phenomenal selection. And what's of the one? What, the one we do it. Why do we do it in detail next week? Oh, yeah. let's do it you can in talk detail about it next, next week, week if you want to. Yeah, but let's I just, do that. I just thought since it's sort of festive season, people might be looking for sparkling, and it's uh, yeah. Oh, that's great to know. Check it out. We can chat some more next week. Okay, okay. so that's on the Prince Wine Store website. Yeah, it's on the website under the office. Have you got yeah, one in particular that you just love that you can I mention I wasn't there now? for it, right. um, okay. but we've got, our, we've got our little top five list up there, so okay. it'll give you – and that was a, that was a, a list of favourites from customers as well, not, not our picks. So. Oh, mm. the grassroots okay. feedback next the pub, week. The pub test sparkling. Next week you're on. <laughs> Fantastic, Wonderful. Miles. Thank you very much, and we look forward to sparkling uckling with you next week. Excellent. And um, thank you to Prince Wine Store for their wonderful support of the podcast. And that was the Cocktail Cabinet. On to BSF. Books, screen and food. And we would like to acknowledge uh, not only Prince Wine Store, one sponsor of our little podcast, but also Red Energy, our other wonderful sponsors. Awarded CanStar's Most Trusted Energy Providers Nationally, 1921 and 22. Congratulations, Red Energy. So, Caro, that's very exciting for them. And you have a book, The Bullet That Missed by Richard Osman. Well, you know, it's always a happy day in my house when the new Richard Osman is released. He's written three now under the Thursday Murder Club moniker. Have you read any of them yet? No. You know, I'm not a murder mystery girl. Oh, look, but this is, 
They're so But I'm well respectful. Written. I'm very respectful of his work. It's not your classic murder mystery. It's obviously set in a retirement home in leafy England. And these four main characters, Corey, they're just such brilliant characters. Even so these though, are the four from the very first beginning, yep. the first Tuesday murder club. Yep. Some partners have come and gone, sadly. And there was an original member who um, was pretty much um, dying in the first book, so she's long gone. But the, 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 the names are Elizabeth, Joyce, Ron and Ibrahim. And they're all, they were all people with pasts. Elizabeth is one of the more... Uh, one of the cleverer literary inventions of the last five years, I reckon. She, it becomes apparent in the first book that she's a former spy. And in the second book, um, The Man Who Dw- Died Twice, her past comes back to haunt her in a big way. And that theme is continued in The Bullet That Missed. They're, they're basically living in a retirement village and they look over... That, the Thursday Murder Club started with them basically trying to solve cold cases. Um it's a sort of a bit of a new tricks, except they really none of them, they're all retired, well retired, and they're living in this retirement village for various reasons. It's very much about the sadness and also the hopefulness of old age. They are so funny, they are so cleverly written. You will laugh out loud. Um, the backstories of all of them are just fascinating. Ron is a former union leader, and a slightly you know you, you can imagine there's been a few. Um, You know, there's been a bit of bad stuff going on with a few knuckle dusters in the old days. Joyce was very shy and lonely and was befriended by Elizabeth. She's a former nurse. So all their old skills come back to... Coming to the um, fore. Yeah, and Ibrahim is just a fascinating Are they going to make a a, a cinema version of this? it's It's a movie waiting to happen or a series. Now he's written three and... As we know, well, well, you do know about this because you're the book person, but Richard Osman was a British um, celebrity, really, wasn't he? A small-time... Producer. TV, yeah, TV. Mm. And um, was he, a, he hosted his own show and um, in Scotland, I think. And he's just he has just absolutely nailed this genre of old people solving crimes, but in, interspersed with... Their families, their family backstories, their former professions, a bit of spy, you know, a bit of crime, a bit of oh, certainly romance. They're easy reads, Corrie, but they are not, they're not just, um, you know, dumb sort of beach reads. Not that beach reads are dumb. You know what I'm saying? Yes. A literary fiction, literary crime yeah, fiction. Oh, he's just absolutely brilliant. So I highly recommend The Bullet That Missed. As I do uh, screen this week, This England which um, I didn't realise you hadn't seen, and I'm only I'm still only watching about an episode a week. Oh, but well, I've, I've watched amazing... the whole thing. I think it's six now, and it's on binge. It's great, isn't I it? I hope that's right. My God, <laughs> if it's not, please don't have a marital. Please don't blame us. Just well, Corrie, don't... you just need to go back to the just what what is it? Just watch. Is yes. The, um... So um, everybody, this England is uh, I I will there I will give you um. A warning here about this. It is quite traumatic if you had a difficult lockdown or, uh, in fact, indeed became unwell or know people who became unwell or even died from um, COVID-19. This follows Prime Minister Boris Johnson's tumultuous first few months in Downing Street as he came in on a wave of, of love and affection and blitzed them in the 2019 election. And then, of course... A few months later, the coronavirus pandemic hit. 
Boris it does Johnson, bring it all back, doesn't it? Oh, it's very it, disturbing. At first you think it's almost documentary style until you realise it's Kenneth Branagh. Well, I, Which I knew took that a while. I, it takes I, a while. Well, I'd read, the, I'd read all the reviews, so I knew what to remarkable expect. Remarkable makeup, isn't it? Yeah, um, I kept thinking Kenneth, Kenneth Branagh. Branagh was going to pop in as, as, as another character. I couldn't work out who Boris oh. was for the first 10 or 15 minutes. Ken Branagh plays Boris Johnson in a most superb, I would suggest, award-winning performance. I think he is absolutely outstanding. Not only does he nail physically the awkward, tussled-haired, blonde, bimbo Boris Johnson, but he also, his passions about Shakespeare and quoting Churchill ad nauseum every day at work. It must have driven the staff at number 10 absolutely crackers. Such an egomaniac. Uh, yeah, and captures captures it so well, the vanity of the man. His love interest, Carrie Simmons, is played most superbly, I think, by Ophelia Lovibond is her name, the actress's name. Simon Paisley Day as Dominic Cummings is fantastic. And Andrew Buchan plays Matt Hancock, the health minister who is trying so hard to resist these really strange decisions that are coming out of number 10 Downing Street. And of course, Matt Hancock came undone when he was found through a window in an office, kissing intimately one of his uh, staffers. And of course, everybody was supposed to be practicing social distancing. The the insidious Dom, though, is clearly running the country. Clearly, with an agenda. And Boris is basically just in the way. I mean, it it's just appalling. It's just horrifying to see. I mean, it, it reminds me of um, The Candidate in a way, that Robert Redford film from the early 70s mm. or late 60s. He just has absolutely no power whatsoever. Um, they, they they just sort of treat him as a bit of a necessary evil. His children, well, for the, you know, the, fir- uh, the first three that I said won't take his calls and absolutely loathe him. He's got this absolute failure to tell them about the fact that his partner Carrie is having a baby, you know, until she's, you know, virtually about to give birth. He's um a moral coward. It, it, it's it's a it's quite a shocking show. It is I, a warning in particular. I think it's episode five where there's a real focus on grassroots England, the extraordinary, the extraordinary heroes of the um, NHS the hospital workers, the doctors, the nurses, and, of course, the staff working in elderly care homes. It is a very traumatic episode, that one, and I was moved to tears on a few occasions. The first couple of episodes, uh, as you know, Coco came over for a sleepover and um, we watched one one night and one the next, and both nights we reported we had rather disturbed sleep and COVID-like dreams, which was really odd. It did stir a lot of It does nail, anxiety. it nails the feeling of the time. Doesn't it? Really the confusion. Well. And, and then when, Bor- of course, Boris himself nearly died. Yeah, that's well, we didn't know how close. Caro, this England was in post-production when Partygate scandal broke, um, which was uh, in the middle of last year or the end of last year. And the producers and the director made the decision not to include it um, at such a late stage. Uh, I think it doesn't suffer from that because we all know what happened later. And um, and I think it's a really intelligent mockumentary. Um, and I think um, even though it has been slammed by some critics in the UK uh, for being um, just really um, not an important um, document of record, for me it was, and I think so just, why is just it watch it for Ken Branagh. Well, this is The Guardian. 
um, who says the voice is spot on. I mean, they uh, they think close your eyes and Ken Brown, it could easily be Boris Johnson, the face full of prosthetics and so on and so forth. But then they say, they say that the series is hampered from the off by feeling both too soon and wildly out of date. So they think that events have actually, um, for people in Britain, have made this um, an irrelevant watch. Well, I don't necessarily agree with that. No, it's a cautionary um, tale of ever I've seen. And one. they say that it's only half telling the story and not telling the truth. So, and but you know, and the drama has got in, and the fiction writing has got in the way. But uh, you know, I think from our distance here in Australia, it's um, it's a cracker of a viewing, don't you think? Speaking of um, gender, and yes, I do. I've really enjoyed it so far. The gender in the workplace issue, that poor um, media advisor who took the fall originally for making the joke about the cheese and the wine and whatever. Remember Mm. her in tears when I was over Mm. in Amsterdam this time last year and he's sobbing and resigning and... You know, it, Charlotte, I think her first oh, name. Charlotte or Amelia, or was a she made a joke. Kind of she thing. made a joke in a mm-hmm. in a media conference. Anyway, in um, a media conference, and he was gone. When you look at what Boris was doing and all the other politics, it's just disgraceful. Terrible, terrible. It really is. So, Caro, I'm moving on to a recipe now, and I'm looking forward to this. This is really, really a quick one, and it can be used in a variety of ways. And actually, I just did it with some pasta the other night because, as you know, asparagus is such a great price at the moment, and it's in season, and it's absolutely delicious, everyone. So, we had a couple of bunches of asparagus in the fridge, heaps of uh, dry pasta, and I thought, well, what can we do? This is an oldie bit of goodie, and it's so old; it's even on one of my little recipe cards which um, came into being not long after I was married as a young bride and I decided that I was going to put every single recipe and also gardening notes on these little cards. I have thousands of them in my house. I'm amazed you found it. I'm amazed you can read it. I've even got a little picture here of how to cut the asparagus. That's what a baby cook I was. Oh, look, acknowledging my 30-something self. So this takes about 10 minutes and it serves four people. 750 grams of asparagus, a tin of flat anchovy fillets, tablespoon of oil, two tablespoons of butter, ground pepper and salt, Italian bread, virgin olive oil, um, and, um, and just baste you like an Italian breadstick or whatever and just baste it with some oil. But I, in fact, I didn't do this as a crostini, which is how it should be served. I did it through pasta. You cut the asparagus into short lengths on the diagonal, which makes them look very tricky and lovely discard any rough ends. God, as if I didn't know that. <laughs> do you okay. Just, do you snap them? I just no, snap them. No, I, I, no, no, no. I just cut them off. But um, I, I, I love raw asparagus. Coco said the other day, you're eating one of the asparaguses. Oh, But you've got to, if, where it snaps is meant to be where you shouldn't, it's the booty bit that you don't want. Oh, I'm too scared. I'm going to snap the whole thing in half. I won't have enough asparagus. No, I'm pretty mean like that. Um, I'm sorry, this is so obvious, isn't it? As I'm reading my 30-something self, um, discard any tough ends. Wow. Drain the anchovies. Oh, I never thought of that. And mash with a fork. Melt oil and butter in the fry pan and add the asparagus, anchovy and pepper and salt if you want it. Cover and cook over a low heat, turning frequently until the asparagus are cooked. Taste for salt and pepper. Heat olive oil in the pan and fry the slices of bread till golden brown and serve the asparagus on top of them. Well, as I said, um, didn't do the didn't do the um, bread, but I did toss it through the pasta, which I've done before, with a bit of lemon juice, just saying. Really easy, really simple, but also as the original crostini recipe, Roman asparagus is your friend. 
That sounds absolutely beautiful. It would be lovely with one of those little, like Oriaketi or one of those little cup-like pastas. Yes, um, it would be. Pastas. We just yes. had fettuccine there. But it's, oh, I, think it, I think a shaped pasta would be really good. And as a pass around, it's a ripper. So that's the Roman asparagus. I will try and make sense of my uh, old notes and write it down for Miss Jane so she can put it on the show notes. Jane, please do not photograph that really <laughs> pathetic. Look, at I mean, on the back, the asparagus, it looks like a... Um, an appendage on a gentleman. <laughs> I Dra- drawing asparagus has never been my forte. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Okay. So that was um, that was the phallic Roman asparagus um, for BSF for Red Energy. Uh, thanks, Red Energy. It sounds delicious and it sounds very simple. And look, what recipe is not enhanced? By anchovy. Oh, well, I mean, isn't that the, I mean, you know me with the spinach and anchovy. I'm a fan of that too. On to uh, grumpies. And you are grumpy, Cara. What are you grumpy about today? I've got an unusual and rather silly grumpy, Corrie, but maybe I maybe people can help me. I have a, a gardening plea, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast. One of my favourite plants, one of my favourite flowers is the hibiscus. And yet again, I have failed in my attempt to grow hibiscus. I've moved I keep buying these beautiful little plants from anywhere from Bunnings, from specialty garden shops. There's that great one, um, Roriana, I think it's called, um, outside of Geelong. Anyway, so there is this one beautiful, beautiful hibiscus. I planted it in a sunny position. It's sitting there, it's gone mouldy. I've, I've been told to be patient two years, nothing's happened. I've put them in big pots in full sun. I've put them in the shade. I had to pull another one out of a pot the other day because it sat there like an idiot, look, doing absolutely nothing. It gets a few sad little flowers, maybe three or four, every late summer, and then it goes into its shell again and then it does nothing. How do I, I, I have spent more money on hibiscus over the years. My friend Nikki has got a hibiscus hedge at the front of her garden. It's so beautiful. Oh, I have one word for you, Caro. What? Climate. Yeah, but I, I, there's Nikki. Nikki is an aberration. You don't often see. Corey, although, that's although not true. having Massive said that, walls of hibiscus all through summer at people's houses around the Mornington Peninsula, around Melbourne. I know. I don't usually... know. I, I do know when I was growing up in Hampton and Sandringham, and I think sandy soil might be good for hibiscus because all of the old-fashioned gardens had hibiscus in them from memory. But um, I was waiting for Jane to pop in there and she's just shaking her head like going too hard. Okay. So, I mean, my grandma had a massive one in Plimpton in Adelaide, which is quite warm down by the beach. I think, Carrie, a lot of people are saying this year, if things aren't established, it's just been too wet and the roots are rotting. So could that be an issue? But it sounds like you've, from this everything been, I'm Googling. This is, <laughs> Jane, this has been a 20, 30 years. Oh. I, I, at our old family home, I tried to grow Still them. Still didn't. I see big pink walls yeah. just covered in this beautiful, you know, the classic pink colour. I buy all these unusual colours. I love white. I love red with the yellow stamen. We're going to have to get you an orangery or a glass house, Caro. Yeah, <laughs> Someone people in glass houses, this, Jane. It's not fair. Someone will know. with everything else. <laughs> yes, okay. So out to all the messengers out there, we need help. Caro needs to be able to grow a hibiscus um, to achieve her life goal. So if you can help her, that would be great. On a happier note, Corrie, that beautiful pink rose you gave Brendan after his mum Moira died, Mother's Love, it's got about seven buds on it at the moment. Oh, I'm so in a, quite a shady position, but it's just so happy. And in my godfather, um, godchild 
ceremony with Ronald McDonald a couple of weeks ago. We gave each other a plant. He gave me a beautiful red rose and the first one has come out. So we're very happy with that too. See, Jane, some good things can come out of this bad weather. <laughs> out of grumpiness. Um, now, six quick questions for Red Energy. Caro, should Gillan McLaughlin stay or go? He should go, and he should go fairly soon. I just think... What a mess it all is. Well, I mean... Nobody it, knows who's in charge. Well, he, well, yeah, they do know who's in charge. It's Gillan McLaughlin, and this sort of notion from Richard Goyder, the AFL chairman, that only Gillan McLaughlin can solve the current problems is crazy. Now, I understand he's been, a, in many, in most ways, a brilliant CEO of the AFL. He's been a great leader. He's done some great things. But he announced his retirement from the game in March, and we're now November, and the suggestion is, and even Gillen is saying to people, look, you know, I'm being told I have to stay to get all this solved, and I've got to get Tasmania sorted. And I understand that he did say he would stay till Tasmania was done and dusted. He would stay until the CBA was done, the men's and women's collective bargaining agreement of the players for the next five years or whatever. But this is crazy. This is crazy stuff. Do you think stuff. it's lack of candidate? It's a refusal to see candidates. Oh, from the really? Well, they, they still haven't got a shortlist. What? They, they interviewed quite a few people, and there's still no shortlist of candidates going forward. They're not even looking at that, and Gillan McLaughlin is not naming an end date because his view is, I think the view from the commission is if they name an end date, then people will try and get deals done quickly and it won't be done as well. But at some point, you've got to say... You're off. Someone, well, someone Time to leave the MasterChef kitchen, Gillen. I, I'm, not, I'm not blaming him. I blame the commission. He's done a brilliant job, but it's time to go. And, okay, maybe say I'm going to stay until the end of January. This Hawthorne situation with the race, shocking racist allegations, this could drag on for years. Now Hawthorne are talking about compensation to the victims. The victims say they won't cooperate with the AFL panel. The AFL says the panel's independent. It's actually not quite independent because the AFL has put it together. I think an independent sporting body needs to, an independent tribunal needs to come forward mm. and look at this. So it's just an, an extraordinary situation whereby... We, and we also have three AFL clubs that don't have a CEO at the moment. Yeah, that's which true. Which is slightly alarming. It, I'm, I'm sure that will change fairly soon. But is everybody kind of hovering, waiting for the top job? I mean, if the, well, can, yeah, the it, candidate, it, for example, who's applying to North Melbourne or Essendon for the CEO role, would they also think they're in the mix for the AFL CEO role? And the dominoes will fall once Gillen's successor is named because, for example... Another reason for him to do it quickly, Caro. Yeah, if Travis Hall doesn't get the job, he's an AFL candidate, internal candidate, he might go back to Essendon where he first cut his teeth as an executive back in the early to uh, mid-2000s. Now, but so he, lots of clubs need this decision to be made for well, other reasons. Well, I just think it's more the, 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 what you're telling people, the message is no one can do this job mm. but Gillan McLaughlin. And in the end, look, it's just not true. He's very, very good. And yes, it'd be great if he could get the Tasmanian Stadium sorted, but surely someone else could. I think name an end date now. Just say you're going at the end of January or whatever. It's, it, it, it's, it's leading to a lack of stability that is quite disconcerting. Well, you, anyway. want to, you want to start the new year with a clean slate, don't you? Well, it doesn't look like that's going to happen, Corrie. Corrie, what is your greatest fear surrounding this week's American midterms? Well, just picking up on what you talked about last week with Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, being hit hit on the head with a hammer. Oh, 
by an anti. By an I'm anti, not laughing. Just the way you said. An anti-democrat. Um, oh. My biggest fear, Caro, is the increased violence against the candidates and their families. Um, the NBC had a report this week that said three quarters of Americans say they are worried about the future of their country and the threat of violence surrounding these elections. So the midterms, as a lot of people know, happen in in the two at the two year mark of a four year president's term, and. Um, 400 and something seats in the House of Reps and 33 in the Senate, as well as a whole lot of state governor roles, are up for grabs uh, and elections are held in pretty much every state in the country. It's What's of... happening is we have armed men in masks and tactical oh. gear have shown up at uh, ballot drop boxes because people are voting early, just standing there in a menacing sort of way. They're not from government, Caro. They're just men in masks. Um, candidates on both sides have been physically attacked. Election workers throughout the country have been threatened. There have been threats against member of Congress. The threats have increased because there's always a death threat or something going on. But the de- but the threats have increased tenfold in the past couple of months. And the trust in media and democratic institutions is at an all time low. So it's really helpful when people like Elon Musk feed in on their Twitter account to say that there is some conspiracy theory around Paul Pelosi's attack. Very helpful, that sort of stuff. Not thank you very much, Elon, for joining the media pile on there. Oh, I'm terrified. He had a big week, Elon Musk. I'm terrified that this time next week we might be reporting on some significant violent clashes. So this is a this is not. A country you really feel interested in visiting at the moment? It's very concerning. And as you know, I have family over there and I'm sure lots of potties do as well. And it is um, it is a tense time. Um, Caro, my question to you is, will you go and see Jeffrey Rush's return to the big screen? What is his return to the big screen? Oh, he's doing a film about Groucho Marx. Oh. Um, about Groucho Marx. It, it does look a bit depressing, actually. It's Groucho Marx's last few years. I think he died in the mid to late 70s. And um, look, Jeffrey Rush has been a really interesting story to me over the last few years. He's sort of denying this is his return to the big screen. He, of course, um, received that big settlement um, after um, allegations of um, sexual harassment. And it was a big court case, wasn't it? And then it sort of suddenly sort of ended and Jeffrey Rush was awarded a lot of money in damages. I think, was it the Daily Telegraph? I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Anyway, he's playing Groucho Marx. It's an Israeli-American um, production. Um, it's called Raised Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House. Um, it does. Look, it sounds a little bit depressing, um, but he's such a good actor. And do I feel a bit funny about... Well, it's like Woody, Woody Allen, isn't it? It's... I know. And I, I've been to see Woody mm. Allen films, and I, I don't know whether that's, you know, sort of right or wrong. I think it, what was he awarded? Eight hundred and fifty thousand in general managers uh, damages, and two million in special damages to cover past and future e- economic losses. So he, it was a Daily Telegraph. That was a um, Jonathan Moran was a journo. Gee, it was um, it was a big um, story, wasn't it, at the time? And there were a lot of stories that came out about Jeffrey Rush and acting with him and what his behaviour was like in theatre, etc. But he just kept saying, this has all been completely overplayed and I didn't disappear as a result of all of this. It's been COVID. I just haven't been doing much. And and he's started working again in his early 70s. And it's funny, a lot of um, 
actors from around the world are coming out and speaking glowingly in his defence. So I don't want to, because I don't really know the inside story of what went on, I do know that the story's written about him, obviously, with a case of massive damage claims and he won. And do we go to the movies and watch him? Well, I probably will. I probably will. Now, Helen Garner, she's 80 this week, which is just extraordinary. You've got to name your favourite Helen Garner book. Mm, It's pretty hard to do. Look, life started for me with Monkey Grip, as I'm sure it did with everybody, and her fiction is is superb. The Spare Room that came out in 2014, where Helen, or the character who is Helen, looks after her friend who comes to town who's having cancer treatment is just such a great read. And I did love This House of Grief, her non-fiction work of a few years ago. But I have to say, Caro, drumroll, <laughs> The book that almost broke up our book club in 1995, The Mm. First Stone. Now, if you think about that, there are a lot of people these days who argue it is so old hat, it's out of date. In fact, Gay Alcorn, when she was writing for The Guardian a few years ago before she became age editor, argued that very point. But now that we're in a post-hashtag MeToo world, and I think this real-life story that Helen wrote in a most interesting style of journalism at the account of sexual harassment allegations made against a former college master at Ormond College by two female students who said who claimed that he had groped them um, remains uh, remains a, a real force. Um, the master, of course, said none of this had happened, um, and when the Ormond College uh, women felt that the college staff and board had, council had done nothing to support them, they went to the police. So it became a criminal case. It's a, he's, well, he, it, was, it was not a popular book for a lot of people who read it. They felt that um, he was unsympathetic towards the women. People like my mother thought it was one of the most brilliant and sensible books he's ever read. I've got to say, um, and, and that started a, a series for her, didn't it? I mean, there was um, the story about Daniel Valerio mm. that won her a Walkley Award. Mm. But Joe Chinque's Consolation is my favourite. And This House I of Grief was, was a remarkable was book. too sad for I couldn't do it. Couldn't um, do but, it. but Joe but Chinque's was a well, – just quickly, Joe's was about a story of good people standing by and doing nothing and letting something – meaning they're bad people. And I found that the most horrific and brilliantly written story. And I, I guess – what she did with um, the first stone was turn a what was a increasingly, you know, ongoing theory about sexual harassment on its head. Really, mm. well, and she she looked at all sides, yeah. and what she did was she embedded herself with the uh, the alleged perpetrator, and in particular his wife went to visit his wife and. She allowed us to see the other side of the story, which she also did in This House of Grief most brilliantly too. So I think she's a profoundly important Australian writer. She will obviously be considered forevermore, you know, one of our finest. And um, I've I've had the privilege of interviewing her a couple of times and um, I just say happy birthday, Helen Garner. She's Um, a gun. Caro, what was the most significant cautionary tale to come out of this year's spring racing carnival for you? Well... Don't do a big media deal with Channel 10 because people clearly don't watch Channel 10 in the numbers they watch Channel 7 and Channel 9. And I I worry for the future of Channel 10 and I think their owners, Paramount, would be pretty concerned at the moment. And the Melbourne Cup ratings were down so badly 
Um, and, I, and I know that, look, the weather was bad. You didn't really feel like turning on the TV to check out the fashions as you might have in other years. Um, but Channel 7 kept peddling this um, theory when they were vying for the AFL media rights. People, at even big events, people won't watch them in the numbers if they're on Channel 10. They brought in Eddie Maguire this year to front the coverage. But, you know, some of the ratings for the other races, you know, like the Everest, um, you know, I still hate the fact that Sydney are trying to upstage the Melbourne Cup. Can't we all just have big carnivals anyway? Um, At different times. And Bruce yeah. McEvaney was front. They, they, they turned to Bruce McEvaney. So... I just think it's a real problem for Channel 10, and I think the VRC would be very concerned about that. How so long is the would, media deal, do we know? Not sure, not mm-hmm. sure, but, I mean, it, it's um, it's just something that would concern me. Ch- 10 did really well with the Big Bash, so if they do something new and different, and maybe it was a weather, I don't know, maybe racing is down generally. You know, I think, you know, people have hypothesised about the gambling issues, about the cruelty issues. Maybe racing's on the nose generally, but... Those ratings figures for the Melbourne Cup and really the whole carnival were a big worry, a big worry. Corrie, you have an amazing fact. The amazing fact is about the Maya Christmas windows, Caro, which opened this week. Not entirely happy with the theme, although I haven't seen it yet, but Disney, it's it, it's a it's a homage to Disney, oh. which I wonder whether they've thrown some money at that just quietly, not sure. But anyway, lots of Disney characters Merchandising, for the children. product placement. Yeah, maybe. The Maya Windows, Carrot, were the brainchild of Fred Asmussen, who died in 1974, I think. I can't remember. Anyway, in the mid-70s. But he was a long-time Maya employee, and he had a real talent for visual merchandising. And in 1939, just before World War II, he was put in charge of the Burke Street store windows a uh, different shape at that stage. You could a bit like the old Georges. You know, you could walk apparently walk in and out around them, rather than just being flat onto the street. Oh, but of well, course, the, the Maya Burke Street store windows, arguably, I would suggest, are Australia's most valuable retail display space, uh, and they still are. I would say, um, each week, sometimes twice a week, Fred would dress twenty four to twenty six windows with whole new product and um, and all sorts of merchandising. In nineteen fifty six he convinced management to allow him to do a Christmas window spread, and they were very concerned about the cost, so that they gave him virtually no budget. And Fred came up with the idea of Santa and the Olympics because of course, Caro, what happened in nineteen seventy six? In 1956. 56. Melbourne had, <laughs> Melbourne had the Olympics. What happened in 1976? <laughs> um, yes, 1956, Melbourne had the Olympics. Great the windows idea. were a huge success. Thousands of Melbournians and their children flocked to the windows and they were the management was so excited by the response. They said, Fred, have more money and um, the job's yours. And so, of course, generations of Melbournians, we have all been treated to stories such as the Nutcracker, um, Cinderella, Aladdin, May Gibbs, the Gumnut Babies has been done about three times, I think. I can remember taking my kids to that. Um, Alice in Wonderland. In 1962, Caro, Fred came up with the idea of Santa Goes to Space, which oh. you and I probably would have seen as little one-year-olds. Very forward-thinking. Well, you were too because you're older than me. Um, and the design and the building and the execution of these windows has become a year-round job. Um 
the State Library has some remarkable paraphernalia and ephemera relating to the Maya windows, and it's on their website. I suggest you can have a look at that. But the State Library said Fred was uncompromising in the realisation of his artistic vision. One former employee recalled, quote, I remember Fred coming to the window where there was a forest of real and artificial foliage mixed together on this particular year. And Fred said, every leaf must face the glass. And then he then went around the window and turned all of the leaves facing the windows so they would pick up the shimmer of the sunshine. Attention to detail. This year is the 67th year of the Maya windows and you can see them between 7.30am and 10.30pm every day until the 6th of January. And there you go. Why don't they keep them running all night or till... Oh, I, th- I don't know. Yeah, I, I I I think they're they're beautiful, and I'm looking for Disney's an odd theme, but maybe I'm just being mm. a bit silly. Well, I'm having I'm having a um, we'll talk about this in the next few weeks, but I am um, I'm so excited. My first ballet outing with a grandchild. Uh, only one of them apparently is old enough and mature enough to come through the Nutcracker with me. So Hattie and I are having a day in town. I'm picking her up from Ballarat. We're coming down and the first thing we'll do is Maya, the Maya windows. Sadly, you can't go to the Southern Cross to have a, <laughs> a spider or no, he is to have a chocolate marshmallow. Well, my grandmother used to take me to Ball and Welsh to the cafeteria there and a, a lime milkshake oh, and a pie. Fabulous. Those were the days. Yeah, my grandmother Simple used pleasures. to take me to the Southern Cross. I used to love the Oh, Southern the Southern Cross. That was so upbeat. Uh, so uh, groovy. And the ice cream bar. Uh, well, remember the, they had a bowling alley there? Yes. Yes. Oh, <laughs> I used look, to go and play bowls there. There are still quite a few places you can go bowling in the city, just saying. Um, Caro, that was lovely chat. Thank you. And thank you, Miss Jane, as always, for being our wonderful producer and getting us up and running. And thank you, of course, to all of you potties for listening. Without you guys as our friends, we wouldn't be here. Well, we would be talking. We'd be chatting, but we'd be alone and not a studio and we'd probably be with our dogs. But it's so nice to do it with all of you guys there. Um, thank you to our podcast supporters, Red Energy. As we said, they've won the CanStar's most trusted energy providers nationally. Two years in a row. That's Red Energy. They have the little tiaras on. Well done, guys. And Prince Wine Store. Visit princewinestore.com.au. Don't forget we're on Instagram. Don't shoot pod is the handle. And, of course, Facebook and Twitter. And if you would like our show notes each week, just go into Facebook and hit the sign-up button. If you're not on Facebook, email feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au and Miss Jane will assist. And also, if you want to send us a letter or a message, we love those. Feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Carol, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's Most Trusted Energy Providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au.